let me express my gratitude for this opportunity to be a part of uh, Vichara Ved, to be a part of uh, Gomanta Vidya Niketan activities, and uh, to be a part of this discussion to think about India yesterday, today and tomorrow. What I intend doing is uh, to essentially uh, sort of deal with this subject, uh, but essentially from the perspective that I have been exposed to and uh, so uh, as we all know the human evolution uh, is uh, in, in the sense science has played uh, a very important role in, in human evolution. You may recognize some things as part of the formal science, some other things uh, not a part of formal science. But the fact remains that what distinguishes humans from other members of animal kingdom is the ability of humans to think at a much higher level compared to what uh, animals by and large are capable of. They also have a brain, humans also have a brain, but human capability is way above. And so uh, we have as humans uh, we, of course, uh, are a part of animal kingdom, so there are animal instincts in all of us, we like it or not. But more than that, uh, humans have observed nature, humans have tried to understand nature, humans have tried to create uh, different uh, different ways of creating comforts, different ways of creating resources, different ways of value addition. Now these are terms which only humans are capable of. Other animals have not been able to do so. And so uh, that is at the root of, you know, whether it is uh, ability to light fire, whether it is ability to create machines and now whether it's an ability to create artificial intelligence uh, in contrast to human intelligence. All that uh, is a creation of human ability to think and that's what science is about. Of course, it's an organized way of doing things, but that is how human capability has increased leaps and bounds over a long period of time. And so, uh, science has been there. Part of it may be formal science as we know, uh, and part of it may be uh, uh, sort of, we may not recognize that that's science, but it has acted. And then many times we talk about uh, India had great traditional knowledge. Uh, we have a lot of tradition in terms of uh, uh, several things. Uh, one of the examples we can see is the uh, look at medicinal plants and, uh, and treat, uh, or there are traditions from the days of Charaka and Sushrta and all. So, uh, what to call as traditional science and what to call as the modern science is, is another. I don't want to get into that, but the fact 
fact is that uh, we are all at this stage because of science, one way or the other. Now, as a civilization, uh, India has had uh, very, very rich uh, uh, civilization, very enlightened uh, thinkers. And so, uh, if you look at till around the year 1700, which is roughly synonymous with agrarian era, India's GDP was the largest compared to any other country in the world. And in fact, the earlier part, there are many countries like United States didn't even exist. Uh, but then, uh, around 1700 and beyond, for a variety of reasons, it could be that the agrarian era changed to industrial era because that's where the dawn of industrial era took place. It could be because we were uh, under foreign rules and a lot of exploitation was taking place. Or for that matter, uh, there are a lot of hurdles in front of Indian population to, to carry out that progress because there was uh, although it was agrarian era, India had a lot uh, of progress made in technology. Call it the Dhaka muslin, call it the rustless wonder, the iron pillar, uh, call it the uh, a lot of shipping and trade that was going on uh, from uh, the peninsular coast, both on the east side as well as on the west side. So, it was not as if India's activities were restricted to only agrarian or agriculture related. But yes, we missed the industrial revolution, you know, the leveraging the machines and mass production and things of that kind that we certainly, uh, that's where uh, we kind of slowly started uh, retracting. And uh, if, you, uh, if you trace that history of how the GDP in the country changed in relative terms, relative to the global GDP, it's only in 1947 when India became independent that by that time the relative GDP of the country was very low, just a few percent. And then it has started kind of going up again and of course we all know India's economy is progressing quite fast these days. So the point I'm making is uh, uh, India was on the top of the world in agrarian era. We seem to have missed out in the industrial era for a variety of reasons. Now we are in knowledge era. There is yet big paradigm change which has already taken place and is taking place. We also know that we are blessed with the demographic dividend, which is not going to last for too long, but right now we have that benefit. Now the question is, can India regain its past glory? the economic progress that is taking place, can we take it to a level where India would become number one country? And, uh, and clearly that can happen essentially on the basis of technology. And I'm talking about technology which is cutting edge technology. I'm talking about technology where you build technology products ahead of other countries. And uh, the answer to that, uh, let me state the answer up front and then I want to sort of debate that with you. The answer to that is yes and no. See, India's economy will grow and we are already uh, uh, in uh, dollar purchase parity term uh, really on the top. Uh, but. Uh, whether, uh, you know, 
economy being on top because we are a large population, a large population with demographic dividend. Uh, so uh, obviously everybody, you have so many youth, everybody is contributing some things. So according to me, growth of economy is a natural thing to happen in the current uh, circumstances. But that does not necessarily mean that the quality of life of average Indian is compared, even if you become the, the, the top GDP in the world, that doesn't necessarily mean that the quality of life of average Indian would be comparable with the best in the world. And if you want quality of life of average Indian to be comparable with the best in the world, and that's what to me development would mean, one of the important parameters, you can describe development in many ways, then uh, I would say that we should really target per capita GDP or per capita income, some parameter like that, uh, where we should uh, be the best. And that would mean uh, that uh, our GDP has to go many times over the, uh, the current leaders like United States or maybe China. And that's a tall order. And uh, we need to certainly fulfill certain requirements to achieve that. And that is what I want to discuss, uh, discuss with you. Now, obviously, as I said, this development uh, evolution does take place because of the, uh, the human intellect and the, the science that uh, the societies have been pursuing. Look at Indian science. Indian science, uh, and I'm now talking about the, in the modern science context. So the era of uh, people like uh, Sir C. V. Raman when he was in Calcutta, Satyendranath Bose, J.C. Bose, Meghnath Saha, Mahindralal Sarkar, you know, many people describe that as the golden era of Indian science. Of course, that was the only Nobel Prize for scientific work done in India that India received. But at that time, in that group, there were at least three or four other people who were at the same level to get a Nobel Prize as Sir C. V. Raman. They didn't get, that's a different story, and that's a separate discussion. You don't see that today, and that's the point we need to recognize. We have great academic institutions, but if you now look at, uh, for example, the ranking of universities, depending on the ranking, uh, uh, you will have Indian universities ranking at different numbers, but none of them are within 100. In fact, in some ranking, none of them are within even 200 or 300. So that's a matter of worry as to why uh, when the resources were so limited, India was under foreign rule. Indian science could, could do things at that level. Now we are not able to do that. And there are, uh, there are many, many reasons and it's not my intention to sort of spend too much of time on that. But the fact remains that uh, you know, uh, that was the era when, in fact, all of them or most of the scientists who were at that class, they were actually very active participant in freedom movement one way or the other. They had that passion. They were doing science 
to take India forward. You know, it was it's a very important factor. And then, of course, later on, uh, we all become materialistic. What's my salary? Do I get more salary compared to other? And, and, and so on and so forth. Now, let me talk a bit in contradiction of what I said already. Not that things are very bad. In the sense, if you look at the science, technology, innovation indicators, which the Department of Science and Technology puts out every year, and look at things like publications coming out of Indian laboratories, uh, you would find that uh, the growth in the scientific publications from India is perhaps the fastest. Last uh, 10 years, if you take, 10 years, 12 years, the growth of uh, scientific output from India has been, as I said, one of the fastest in the, in the world. So then where is the problem? And the problem is uh, most of our scientific work or scientific research is actually driven by the interests abroad. I want to, uh, I want to do science, I want to be somebody. There are two ways of looking at it. One is to see what are the problems in front of our country and what are the problems that I need to solve and do research to address those problems. But then there are challenges like uh, you solve a problem in spite of all the difficulties you get seeing. You will find it very difficult to get it published in international peer-reviewed journals because you are not a part of a larger team. On the other hand, uh, it is very attractive to be a part of uh, somebody's lab abroad, to be a collaborator of some eminent scientist abroad, to visit them, work in their laboratories, come back here and do some collaborative research. And so obviously we have good publications, good citations. But when you do that, and not that we should not do that, that's a, that's a right way, but the lacuna there is that when you do that, you are pursuing somebody else's idea. So at best you can be number two. You can't be the leader of a particular idea or addressing a particular idea. So you may be a good scientist, you may have a lot of uh, recognition, but you can't go on the top of the table. So you neither contribute to national cause nor become the top-notch scientist uh, in the global standard. And so, I think it's important that, you know, science can happen only through... Collaboration is an important uh, aspect of doing scientific research. But that does not mean that uh, we carry somebody else's bidding. We should be doing research to address our challenges, the problems which are more important to us. And if you do that, maybe initially there will be hurdles in terms of, uh, in terms of good publication record or something. But India is a large country. We have, you know, creating critical mass in this country is not difficult. And if we, uh, if we create a pool of researchers of that kind, I think it's not difficult for India to go on the top of the table. So the point is, as far as scientific research is concerned, as I say, if you really examine the data, we've been doing quite well. But uh, in terms of being among the top, not sufficient enough, uh, there has been that fundamental challenge. And unless we recognize that and address, this will always be a problem. 
Now, uh, when you do research, research you do for, well, one is uh, pushing the knowledge frontiers forward. It's an important aspect of doing research. An important, you know, civilizations have grown because there has been this research, and I'm not talking about research only in science, any kind of research where you push knowledge frontiers forward is an essence of civilizational progress. Now, uh, and that's an important part. Then you don't ask question, you've done research, what the country has gained? What is the contribution to economy? You know, such questions are actually irrelevant. But, at the same time, the new technology which contributes to economy, which contributes to economic growth, value addition, that new technology arises out of new knowledge that you create while you push the knowledge frontiers forward. Now, this is where again a similar problem as I described in the context of scientific research arises when you are doing technology. If I am uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, I, I have done some new research finding. Now, maybe it has no application today, maybe some of them have applications today. Now the question is, as a country or as a community or as a scientific uh, group, I may say the aptitude of individuals may be different. I may say that I want to restrict myself to pure research, so I don't worry about technology. Somebody else will say, you know, there are usually described, you know, scientists of the kind of, uh, say, Niels Bohr. So that's a you know, fundamental research uh, that also has led to a lot of applications, but over a period of time, not immediate. That is not the driving force for doing research. Or the uh, scientists like Edison, whose most of the research has been driven by application, ultimately you know, solve some challenge which human beings require to be addressed in their day-to-day -day life, incandescent lamps, for example. Now, the two are two different kinds of research. In between, you could also have science where, research where there is a lot of new knowledge, but also a lot of benefit, human benefit. So people say that's the kind of research which Pasteur did, described as part. Now, the point is that uh, I may have aptitude of only doing pure research or I may have aptitude of doing pure applied work. But if I say that I will focus on pure research and if there is an important application that is possible and that doesn't go forward because I am not interested and nor anybody else picks it up in the sense there is no hand-holding, there is no relay. It's possible that I pass it on to somebody, the baton goes to somebody, and so you carry on. If you have that ecosystem, then uh, depending on the uh, individual aptitudes, uh, there is a good chance that the scientific research will get translated into application. And when I'm talking about application, See, you can also think about application for which you can utilize existing research, existing knowledge, mm -hmm. which is very important. But that doesn't give you the kind of leadership position in the community of, uh, or committee of nations as if you have a new technology which is first time ever out of your research. And this is where I think nations have, the country like India is important. Now, you, today you look at which are the nations which are on the, you know, which are considered most important, most powerful. You may say, does money give you, makes nation powerful? 
perhaps to some extent yes but there are countries which are very very rich saudi arabia or even there are small small nation state if you look at their per capita income it's huge but they are nowhere to be counted in terms of their technological power and so there is no military strength and so they don't count in dictating terms in the global politics money to some extent yes but not yet. on the other hand countries like uh, like united states and now you are watching the russia ukraine war country like uh, russia economically not very strong but technologically quite strong militarily quite strong so the point i am making is you generate wealth out of technology you generate military power out of technology you generate power to influence the world out of your technology but of the technology of the kind which is which is new technology which others haven't been able to build so far and to be done ahead of others and we must need to get an ecosystem where you know this translation of new knowledge to new technology takes place all the time now for for such a thing to happen we again need to you know it's think about it this is actually a cultural problem we have a lot of things in uh, in our society or maybe i would say in our genes where we put ourselves in silos i am different than the others so the question is moment somebody else who is not like me if that person creates some new idea i should start and collaborate with him but i would go and pull his legs now in such an environment uh, you can't have a, a group or a society or a country reaching the top of the table so i think these are some of the issues that we need to we need to address so this is the second point that uh, we must go through a socio cultural transformation to be able to translate good science that is being done into good technology ahead of others and leverage that technology to for economic uh, economic growth let's take it a step further now uh, you know economic progress uh, it for example you don't necessarily require the top notch technology for economic progress so i call it uh, the so called uh, uh, development driven by principles of economics development driven by finance now i think it makes perfect sense that i look at what are all the resources i have and uh, look at where i'll get better price for those resources and simply do a barter deal or market those resources we've been doing that for time immemorial whether it is agricultural products whether it's natural resources or whatever you don't really require too much of science and technology of course you require some bit of rudimentary stuff, but something which is known for ages and uh, but there are conditions where you certainly economy will grow but uh, it doesn't lead to in improvement or strengthening the human capability the society becoming you know commanding getting commanding position in the world the uh, dominant position to sort of uh, dictate them it will be like uh, it's a, i i i describe that more as a transactional mindset uh, 
which will be always there. You know, transactional mindset is something you cannot avoid. But it doesn't take you very far. At the next level, I would say uh, uh, you can talk about development or progress driven by technology. So, uh, we have a lot of young people, they get trained, so they design new things, new projects. Or you come to know about new procedures, you can become good professional, engineer, doctor, architect, what have you. And you contribute to the society. And this is at the next level compared to just dealing with kind of raw material export. Now it still does not allow you to uh, sort of turn the, the balance of trade in your favor in the context of the new products. New products meaning uh, from raw material export to technology product and from technology product to knowledge product. You know, this is the transition which is taking place. It still doesn't allow you. but. At home, you can certainly say whatever we are doing is state of art, world class, because we have group of potential. And that, I think, situation India has uh, reached, arrived. We have the best of doctors, we have the best of engineers. We can always claim many things which are on par with the world. But when you ask that, uh, is that the first time you have done compared to anybody else in the world? Or whatever you have done may be best in the world or comparable with the best in the world, but others have already done it earlier. And you will find most of the thing are of that latter kind. So there is progress, but not good enough. As I said in the beginning, now we are in the knowledge era. Now, so the third layer is the progress driven by knowledge. So, uh, call it, uh, you know, uh, if you have the best of professionals, you want to do something extraordinary. Today our tendency is normally that, no, 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 but this we have not done. There is a lot of capital outlay, a lot of financial risk, so we must get consultant from abroad. And it's a sensible thing to do. But the fact is, we, to, we resort to doing that because we haven't got the adequate confidence, although we may have that knowledge. But imagine a time when uh, we achieve that condition, that all right, we do things on the basis of our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own understanding. Maybe first time we'll fail, but second time we'll come get it right. And do something, as I said, uh, differently compared to what others do. And that, if you, if you get into that, then you can certainly create products which you can, you can export. And I'll give you a simple example. So you take all high-tech products which are taking place within the country. Some atomic energy is one, space is another, the missile program of defense is another. Now, in these areas, India was forced to do this because nobody will share that technology with you. Now, it has taken time. Uh, others may have done it in five years, we might have taken uh, 20 years. It has taken that time. But the fact is, today we do things better, we do things cheaper. All high-tech things that happen, whether it is Mangalyan, Chandrayaan, building a nuclear reactor, building a missile, satellite interceptor. All these things have happened in the country and they have happened at much, much lower cost. Brahmos uh, today is supposed to be one of the 
most powerful missile in the world. Now, this is what I call knowledge-driven products. And these are products. Now, uh, it has taken time for us to get into export market in a big way, but that also is uh, started happening. And that should happen in, in all areas, and that should happen in a large scale. And that is where then you, you know, you get that uh, power. You, you become a powerful country uh, in terms of uh, earning capability, dominating trade. You become a powerful country in terms of military capability. And you become a powerful country to, I wouldn't say dictate, but at least shape the world as it emerges. So the so-called Vishwa Guru, if you want to dream India to be, then that is what we should take the science and technology to. And if you do that, surely this would happen. Now, I'm not putting a timetable that whether it will happen in uh, uh, by uh, 2047 when India will be 100 or or a little later or little earlier. That's a matter of how things are organized. But at least I want to propose that that should be our aim. Simply becoming the, the top economy in the world is a, in that context, a very low aim. It may appear very difficult at this moment, but it's actually, it won't make you or meet your ambition that you must have, that the quality of life of Indians, average Indian, should be comparable with the best in the world. If you put this simple objective as your development objective, I think everything else follows according to me. But that requires that kind of mission, that requires uh, that kind of mindset, both in terms of people who do new technologies, but also in terms of people who leverage that technology for the larger economic good for themselves and also for the country. So that is the transition that to, that one would like to one would like to see. Now, uh, let me take this a little further. And, uh, for example, uh, you know, I it told you that you know you could. Uh, make value addition or you could make economic gains on the basis of raw materials, on the basis of uh, uh, your own uh, the uh, sort of uh, what I call procedural knowledge in the sense uh, I have studied a subject, I have become expert in that subject. I have come up to the point where uh, uh, I know all the SOPs, standard operating procedures, to kind of uh, deliver on that, whether it's a service or a product or whatever. And uh, as I said earlier, and so you do things at the word class. At the third layer is uh, this question about, uh, you know, be consistent with uh, the way things are evolving. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, the new technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning is something that everybody talks. All universities, all colleges are announcing courses and all young people want to, which is an important thing. Same thing is true about, uh, for example, uh, 
there could be, uh, you know, cognition is becoming a, a big branch of science. And tomorrow you would have big technologies arising out of cognitive sciences. Or for that matter, the, the genetics is another area where it would unfold into large-scale technologies. Now, if you now look at, we are making progress in science, we are making progress in technology. But if you look at these top-notch areas, which many people describe as R&D intensive industry. See, earlier you had technologies and you start get technology from somewhere and make product and put it in the market. After uh, some years, you find that there is something more competitive has come in the market. So you go and get another technology and you carry on. And as I told you, that does not give you the leadership position. So now you say, okay, I will have in-house R&D because that will make sure that I remain competitive. My business remains competitive. And if I do R&D at the cutting edge, globally competitive R&D, then I'll make sure that the technologies, new or old, or you know, that I'm practicing will remain at the, uh, at the best level possible. And my business will remain competitive. Now we are moving to an era where for doing this, you need, of course, you need research, you need to develop products. But you also require a support system, which requires very, very large investment. Take the case of semiconductors. You know, I put it to you that India has actually missed semiconductor revolution, which took place maybe 20 years ago. We completely missed it. Why? In terms of science, I think we're, you know, material science is a very strong area of Indian science. And they can, they can explain to you almost everything uh, on a, you know, as it is happening, as some development is taking place anywhere in the world, there will be an Indian scientist who would be doing that, pursuing that, and they will explain that. So that knowledge about that was never a problem. But we missed semiconductor revolution. Because you want to do any product in semiconductor, you require a fab. And such fabs involve billions of dollars of investment. Who would make that investment? Industry would feel government should do, government would feel uh, what is the, you know, on what basis we do, what is the basis for government to carry out that investment. And, uh, Today, there is so much of distrust between business and government. So such investment, it has not taken place in India. Only now again people are talking about. Now all these new areas which I am mentioning to you, they will require such platforms. They will require such large investments. What is the chance of that investment taking place in the country? Now, that will not happen unless our thinking is in the, in the right place. So, the R&D intensive industry to take shape, it requires some additional conditions. It's not just the, the ecosystem which I mentioned earlier, but more than that, you, those conditions must get fulfilled. And unless that happens, uh, it will be very difficult. So just like we missed semiconductor revolution or microelectronics uh, revolution, uh, we actually missed, for example, the high temperature superconductivity. It came uh, a big bang at time when everybody used to talk about it. In terms of industrial product India, what has happened? Nothing. Although in terms of publication, probably India has produced maximum number of papers. Again, the same issue. So this is this 
what they call a triple helix architecture is absolutely essential for such things to happen. The triple helix architecture, the three elements are of course R&D, is, is fundamentally important. But alongside there should be industry which uh, not only participates in R&D, carries out a bit of investment in R&D, but also look at looks at uh, creating opportunities in the commercial industrial space and government on the third uh, leg or third uh, strand, where in addition to complementary investment, because industry investment by itself is unlikely to be sufficient. These are usually very large investments to be put in upfront, where you don't know. So industry won't put all investment unless they know that the government is backing it up and backing it up in the true sense, not just lip service. And government would uh, take right policy decisions unless they know that the, the time has arrived. No point in making, you know, the policy making usually lags. They are, there has to be a felt need, then only it will happen. And more than that, government has to, or public has to make investments. And how, what is the basis for public to make investment unless they know? So there has to be this very close working together. R&D which tells the future, uh, creates uh, knowledge about the opportunities that exist, to some extent a roadmap to how to sort of translate uh, that knowledge or opportunity into reality and uh, the uh, you know policy making which has to go go hand in hand so unless these three entities they work together not in a serial way you do this then i will see that doesn't they have to do concurrent working let us do it together let us take the risk together so we need to create that kind of thing to, to make such things happen. And uh, if you, so you can imagine the challenge that we have. It happens in many countries elsewhere, it, is, it, it does happen. There are investments, public investments for the futuristic programs. Now, uh, if you ask me that, you tell me that this investment will pay off, otherwise somebody's head will be chopped off, it will never happen. And uh, see, that is the main challenge. Now, in that context, if you now ask that these are these evolving areas which may become the future of business or the, the real uh, value creation in the knowledge era, and if you now say that condition in India and condition in the, the most advanced countries in the world, whether the gap between those most advanced countries in the world and India, the gap is increasing or decreasing, sometimes it looks to me that that gap is actually increasing. India is progressing. India is going way ahead. And India, its economy will grow. That's a given thing, according to me. But not good enough. Not good enough to take give India the, the top rank uh, position. And if this gap is, is increasing, uh, recognize instead of getting power out of technology, you may get into vulnerabilities. And you may get into vulnerabilities uh, of a very serious kind. For example, I'm sure some of you might have heard even artificial intelligence. You know, all your mobiles are, uh, are an excellent example of uh, how effective. You know, it tells you where you went. It, it 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 picks up your choices, keeps on giving you advices that maybe you want to buy this, you want to buy that, or you want to go to such and such a restaurant, try such and such cuisine. 
So it's actually taking control of your life. Now look at it in the larger sense. You know, where does the market for all these lies? Market for these lies where there is, you know, where there are people. Where are the largest number of people? They are in India. In terms of buying power, the largest market is in India. And in terms of these products, who is going to prepare? So it is these advanced countries. And then we are getting so many products. They are all, uh, you know, uh, as an example, if you take artificial intelligence, they all have to be trained. So that requires a database. And one of the reasons why all these companies descend on India is because in terms of such data, India is the largest custodian of such data. But leave that aside and just imagine that uh, a product is trained on, an, on a Western society or an African society or South American society. And then you deploy that product here. And you will find that you know, it's giving all the answers. But those answers will have a bias because it is trained like that. You know, we all, we all are social animals. We deal with a particular thing or we develop capabilities based on what we learn from our surroundings. So even AI products, if they are trained on something, they will come with a bias. So, so you can actually, uh, it, you know, you could create a clash of cultures of a different kind, very different kind. So this is this is the simp simplest and the smallest kind of vulnerability that can arise. It could also be uh, that. Uh, I can decapacitate, you know, I may have a lot of fighter planes and missiles and things like that. But if I have proper technology, I can decapacitate that. You may have things, they will just be there uh, sitting ducks. So, uh, one has to be very, very conscious about being in the race, being in the forefront and to ensure that we don't become vulnerable. In the days of East India Company, it was very easy for them to uh, kind of uh, gain control of a large country like India, just like that. That also, if you think of it, that because they obviously came with better technology and of course manipulated human beings. So if you have technology differential and greater ability to manipulate human beings, you can overpower. Why do we require large armies and things like that? So it is, uh, you know, it's not just the question of being uh, on the uh, sort of, you know, to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, because this, looking at these things purely from economic lens, would be very, very short-sighted. And I think we must organize our growth in scientific capability. We must organize our ecosystem where you can carry out the translation. And we must organize uh, uh, a, a, a very competent, robust, triple helix architecture involving government, industry, academia, all working together. Today, of course, for example, between academia and industry, things are, I would say, shade better than what they were earlier, but not good enough. So, in the last leg of what I have to speak before you today, uh, I want to uh, I want to talk about a few aspects as to. You know, what is it that we need to do in the context of the so-called cultural revolution, which I mentioned? I have a cartoon. I, whenever I 
talk with a PowerPoint presentation. You know, we let's talk about first education, then we'll go to research, and then we'll go to. Now, uh, we have identified curriculum. We have we expect some outcomes, and then there are rules and. Uh, centrally controlled that by the end of first year you must know this and second year you must know that and then there is evaluation and that evaluation has to be same for everybody because you have to be fair to everybody so this cartoon is essentially a teachers sitting in a jungle and his students are, students are, there is an elephant, and there is a monkey, and there is a bird, and diverse animals, but they all have brains, so they can learn. And then the teacher says, I must give you a common test. So there is a tree, climb up. Now how is it possible? A monkey can climb just like that. Uh, elephant cannot. It doesn't mean that monkey is more competent than elephant. But we have created a system like that. You know, we talk about diversity. It's such a buzzword now. In nature, we must uh, preserve diversity. Uh, the quality of life keeps on improving as a result of diversity. We must avoid monoculture. All these things are, you know, we all talk. Why can't we recognize that between human beings, no two individuals are alike? There is a difference. So this new education policy, which gives emphasis on allowing students to learn at their own pace and creating student-centric education system, I think is extremely important. The question is whether the traditional people, first of all, traditional people both in the governance and policy making and then actually at the implementation level, will that spirit embedded in the new education policy, will it get implemented? That is the real, uh, real question. Otherwise, uh, you know, the there are different students and there are enough examples in history where students have different capabilities and you allow them to flourish in with respect to those capabilities and if in, in some cases they are weak or slow, certainly you must make some remedial uh, action. But that doesn't mean that you kind of hold somebody back. So this is one part of recognize diversity and allow learner-centric uh, education. There is a second thing uh, at the research level. For example, uh, let's say nowadays we talk about trains and one day Bharat uh, and then uh, the bullet train and then there is a magnetic levitated train, maglev. So these are all potential possibilities in terms of transportation sector. Or for that matter, you could have a car uh, which uh, can run on the road but which can also fly, flying cars. And you must have seen on internet, several people have done some prototypes. Now the question is, I have a lab let's say lab dedicated to transportation, say, let's say railway transportation. And the technology keeps on improving. So I, my lab also I keep on improving. And slowly I can increase the speed, I can reach bullet train. In the same kind of lab, can I evolve a maglev? And my answer is the chance is very little because they are used to a set of disciplines where the evolution of maglev doesn't feature. 
and forget about a flying car. On the other hand, if let's say I have a lab which is uh, let's say dedicated to open-ended basic research in the area of electromagnetics. So they are pursuing electromagnetics. Electromagnetics is a huge subject. Maybe there will be somebody who could visualize how to make the most powerful magnet. Maybe somebody would visualize how to stabilize a magnetic field or how to make sure that I have my flux lines right. Solve all the electromagnetic uh, equations. And the chance of a maglev emerging from there is actually higher than a traditional transportation development lab. Because we are talking about the so-called uh, inflection point. So this is, can this happen in our country? Our research labs, they will say, no, 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 we are all pure researchers. We have technology ka kaam hai. And a technology lab will say, this is something we have never done. So what do we need to do? I think we need to alter the value system in our labs align the value system in terms of, you know, that is that goes in recognition of individual's contribution, align that with the institutional objectives. And not uh, standard thing that if I publish 10 papers, I am better than somebody who has published 8 papers. That's what is happening now. Or uh, I have been teaching for 10 years, so I am better than somebody who has been teaching for 5 years. Because we say that's an equitable way, democratic way. And in this way, you can never achieve these objectives. So I think we need to correct that, uh, that value system. Finally, in the industry translation, and today, uh, well, there is a common refrain, an academic person would say, the industry fellows, they don't come forward and invest sufficiently. An industry fellow will say that, well, uh, these academics, they don't know value of money. And if I invest money, I don't know whether I'll produce return. And then the academic people will say, no, 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 but we can't research, you cannot have such short-sighted thing. These are long-term things. The industry fellows say, I don't know whether you will produce return even after 10 years or 20 years. Now, the question is, how do you make these different minds come together, meet, and develop mutual confidence, mutual respect? This can only happen if we respect an industry person participating in research and academics and also an academic person or a research person actually participating in industry. Today our academics, they can't even stand on the shop floor for five minutes. In the sense, you know, remaining engaged, part, being a part of that debate, discussion, problem solving. And vice versa, an industry person, is, he sits in a discussion among the academics, he will be fish out of water. And that has to change. This is, uh, so I think we need to address these issues at multiple levels. But uh, I will close by saying no use blaming individuals. I think Indians are known to be far more competent and intelligent as individuals. And this is proven time and again. You take this person and put them in a foreign lab. And if, if an array, if I didn't know that he's so bright, but now he's doing wonders. And that's happening because he's in that environment. We need to create that environment here. And, uh, but otherwise, I think uh, uh, the, basically the Indian mind, I believe, is actually far superior. And, uh, 
we have to blame ourselves why Indian mind is not able to perform in India. Indian mind is performing very well outside. That's why Americans keep giving H-1B visa to Indians on preference. Because they have a policy of talent search. And in that talent search, the most preferred people that are welcome there are Indians. So I think we need to change that to make that happen in India. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, as we approach uh, the centenary or the so-called Amrita Kala and beyond, I think uh, there is every opportunity for us to regain the past glory to be the best country in the world in multiple ways, including the strength, including the dominance, including leveraging our past heritage, new capability, shaping the world. You know, the world is not going in the right way today. And there is certainly a need to shape. But uh, if you are not powerful, even if you say right things, nobody would listen to you. On the other hand, if you come to the right level of capability, then the world would listen to you. And we have that ability to shape the world. So I think uh, that is what uh, we all should uh, look forward to. And, uh, and I think it is possible. So earlier I said my answer is yes and no. So now let me qualify that, say, provided we do all those things what we talked about, I think the answer is clear, yes, and we look forward to that day. Thank you very much.